How many of you remember what's in this picture, the next picture? Remember those? Many of you still have them, I imagine. But some of you may not even know what that is. It's the old flour sifter. You know, I, I remember mom using it when I was a kid. Every time she would bake some bread, which for me could have been every day, but she didn't bake it that often. Some cookies, some cake. You, you would get out that flour sifter. You, you would pour the power in gen, pow, that flour in gently, or you had this cloud of, of uh, flour dust everywhere. You, you remember that? And then you'd been getting, turning the crank. Sifting the flour down and out and through because unless you sifted it, there would be huge clumps that would, would ruin your baked goods. Those sifters were important. Of course, today they do a better job of taking care of that for you in the processing of it. And, and you don't have to do it as much. But that sifting process was important to, to the outcome of your baked goods. The Bible tells us that at the day of judgment, there will be a sifting, a dividing, a separating. The book of life will be opened. It says there will be a search for your name. And if your name is found, that's a good thing. If your name is not found... That's not such a good thing. Listen from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Those are the words given to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, the revelation of God. A sifting, a separating, a shaking. That time will come. And so as I read this passage of Scripture, and as I've been looking at it for a couple of days, familiar to most of us here, I realize, as maybe, maybe you do, that we all ought to have the same goal. You know what that goal is, right? That on that great day, what the day that in the Bible is called a day of judgment, some people call it the, the great white throne judgment, That on that day, when that book is open, the goal is that our names will be there. That as that sifting is done, searching out whose name appears and whose doesn't, that your name will be there. That's the goal. Or at least that ought to be, I hope, is the goal. I think about heaven. 
And I don't think so much about what it will be like, although I do think about that from time to time. I think more about who will be there. I have a, a level of confidence, not because of who I am, but because of my faith in Jesus, that, that when my life ends, when that day of judgment happens, I'll find myself in heaven. I have a pretty high degree of confidence in that. Again, not because of who I am, but because of the promises that God has given to me. But I think about others that I love, others that I care for. I think about you gathered in this room today. And I think, will they be there? Will this person be there? Will that niece be there, that nephew, that aunt, that uncle? Will this grandson or this grandson, hopefully all of them, will they be there? On that day that that sifting comes, will we be in heaven? So as I look at this passage from the revelation of God given to the Apostle John, there are a couple of things that I want to highlight today that help us just to think about this goal of having our name in the book of life. The first one is that God is in complete control of judgment. He's in complete control. Since creation, there has been this spiritual battle going on, not that we can see, but that we can experience, we can feel. Uh, we, we know it's there because of things that have happened in our life, things we observe. The battle against good and evil is, is all over history. It's even in all of our beloved fiction stories. There's the battle of good and evil. We know it happens. And so this spiritual war between God and Satan, between good and evil, and Satan has been at work deceiving people all of recorded history, trying to deceive us. He, he wants us to believe that there is no God. And if he can accomplish that, then it's easy for us to recognize that if there's no God, there will be no judgment. If there's no God, it doesn't matter how I live here and now. If there's no God, all of that is irrelevant. And evil tries to convince us that that is true. But short of accomplishing that, if that can't be accomplished for everyone to get us to believe that there's no God, then he'll help us, coerce us, cause us to begin thinking that a loving God would never remove us from his loving presence. And so while there, there may be a God... He would never put us in a place that's symbolized as a lake of fire that would be so torturous and so cruel. That God, who loves us and cares about us, would never remove us from his loving presence. That's one of the lies that the enemy tries to teach us, to get us to believe. He blinds us to truth. But the truth of the matter is, that God is in control of what will happen on that great day, that day of judgment. The Old Testament, if you remember the story of the Israelites, after they had left Egypt, been set free from their slavery, 400 years of slavery, they began making their way to the promised land. And you remember that Moses went up on the mountain and received the commands from God. And when he came down, the people were misbehaving so 
awfully that in his anger he shattered those those tablets of the law, ended up going back up onto the mountain where God gave him a second set of those stone tablets. And, and here's what's said in Exodus chapter 34. It says, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, him being Moses, and proclaimed, proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Great proclamation. God loves us. He maintains that love to thousands, millions. He forgives wickedness. He forgives our rebellion. He forgives our sin. But then it goes on. One more half of one more verse. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's sifting. It's not wheat being refined to fall through the mesh at the bottom of the sifter. It's a sifting of people. Guilty and not guilty. With God, against God living for God's pleasure and good, or living for our own evil. That's sifting. New Testament puts it really bluntly. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you ever thought about how often you sin? I recognize that most of us don't really stop and think about that. But in a moment of clarity, of clear thought, have you ever stopped to think about how often you might sin? Well, first you have to figure out what sin is. What is that? John Sorensen, as the president of Evangelism Explosion International, says... A good way to explain sin is that it's anything we say, think, do, or don't do that is displeasing to God. Anything we think, say, do, or don't do that is pleasing to God. That's kind of a generic definition, but it makes the point. So how often? How often might it be true of you that you have thought said, done, or not done something that is displeasing to God. Hmm. When I was a boy, high school student, my my pastor taught me uh, about uh, a lot of ways to talk to others about their faith. uh, Part of that teaching was he gave me some illustrations that have stuck with me all my life. One of them you've heard me talk about before, but not all of you heard it, so I'm going to tell it again, and uh, the rest of you can just sit there and pretend you heard it for the first time. Think about your own life. I'll think about my life. And if we try to answer that question, how, how often do we sin? Now, what, what's that look like? And, of course, there's a theological argument to, that can be made that, you know, once we come close enough to God, maybe we don't sin at all, but we're not going to get into those deep weeds yet today. <laughs> let's, just, let's just think about how often might it be? How often? 
Once a week, once a month, once a decade, once a year, three times, 20 times. How often might that be? Suppose a person sinned only 10 times a day. Or if they were good, five. Or if they were really good, only three times a day. Only three times a day a person had an unkind thought or would lose his temper or who would scream in road rage driving up M53 or across M59. Or even more, you think of something that you ought to do that would be helpful to your neighbor, but you choose not to do it because you don't want to be bothered with it. How many times a day? If you got that down to three, that would be really good. Really good. Three sins a day, really good. But three sins a day, look at the math. That's 21 times a week. Or in a year's time, that's 1,092 times a year, if my calculator is correct. And the average life is maybe a, a little more than 70 years now. I'm not sure. It goes up as medicine gets better. So, no, three times a day would only be 76,440 times in 70 years. Can you imagine what would happen if you stood before a judge and he started looking at your record and he goes, Oh, only 76,440 times. Ah, you're okay. I don't think so. How often? How often do you have a thought that is wrong? displeasing to God, never uttered on your lips, never shared with another person, but just the thought of it, God knows. How often does that happen? Or a word that you say in anger or frustration, or something that you do that you shouldn't have done. And yet God doesn't even stop there. You know, those, those are what we call sins of commission, things that we've done. But there, there are also another, other kinds of sins. Those sins about the things that we should have done that we didn't. Sins of omission. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do but doesn't do it, sins. One day we're going to be sifted. We're going to stand before holy God. For Jesus, his son. And the things of our life are going to be dumped into the sifter. And what will happen? What will happen? Some of you are sitting there thinking, well, I'm done. Might as well leave. Maybe your number isn't 70,000, but it's too high. Don't give up yet. There's still hope. Keep listening. See, God's in complete control of judgment. But also, God's judgment is a universal 
judgment. It's interesting as you read this, and and I'm going to read some other scriptures that, that help us remember that every one of us is going to face this day. No one escapes it. The picture painted by John in Revelation, this uh, apocalyptic style of writing, full of imagery, paints this picture of, a, of the dead all coming, all standing before God, all being sifted. Jesus' own words in John chapter 5, very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man." Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. We'll all stand before God. We'll all be there. Now, if you listen carefully, you, you heard the beginning of that. It said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged. And yet I'm staying, making the point that there is a universal judgment for all of us. That day of judgment comes when we will all stand before God. So how do you put that together? I, I'm, you know, lowly Pastor Jerry saying we're all going to be judged. And here's Jesus saying, you know, if you, if you believe in me, you won't be judged. Well, it's just a little thing of language that we need to straighten out so that we're, we're clear. It's, a, it's actually an issue of translation. The word there that Jesus used in his language was the word creases. Creases. Or if you would pronounce it the English way, uh, crisis. There will be a crisis for all of us. A crisis. A day of crisis. That word crisis, as Jesus used it, just meant simply a a separating. There will be a day of separating, a sentence of condemnation, a time of damnation uh, that comes, that those who do not believe, who do not hear his word, will be found in this crisis. They haven't made the crossing from death to life. But we'll all face it. It will come to every one of us that day when we will stand before God and our life will be sifted, evaluated, looked over. I think it will be more thorough than our annual physicals. Third thing. God's judgment will be based on the contents of the book of life based on the contents of the book of life. Uh, John said the dead are judged according to what they have done. Well, we have to talk about that a little bit too. What's that mean? According to what we have done. Does that mean that we, we're, there's this tally of, of all the good things we've done and all the bad things we've done, and the one that tallies the higher number is, determines whether we're with God forever or whether we're thrown into this uh, apocryphal lake of fire? 
the separation from God? Is entry into heaven based on a quota of good things that we do, that we've accomplished in our life? What's the basis for our name being put into that book of life? It's simple. It's easy. The course of the testament of Jesus, his teaching to us says over and over again, our names are entered into that book of life as we faithfully acknowledge him as our savior. So we let him be the Lord of our lives. The apostle Paul said it this way. He said, for by grace you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, no one of us has been able to live in such a way that our names have been written into the book of life solely because of how we've lived. The ledger is against us. It just is. But it's the the gift of Jesus, the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ, that allows us to be forgiven. We're, We're saved by God's graciousness. We're judged righteousness not because we can say, I did more good things than bad. We're judged righteous because of our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ. And it is our belief that helps us cross over from death to life. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this day of judgment, this day of sifting when we stand before God, what's that look like? What are the elements of of that judgment? It's a day when our secrets will be disclosed. Romans 12 or Romans 2, Luke 12, all talk about the secrets of our life being disclosed to God. Luke says there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Nothing. We will be completely and totally vulnerable before God who knows all, who sees all, who remembers all. And our secrets will be exposed. Our character will be evaluated. Our words will be revealed. Matthew 12 says... But I tell you that men will leave, or men will have to give account on that day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Oops. Every careless word. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So these things continue, and there, there's more I'm going to share, but let's talk about this for a minute. What are these elements of judgment? Again, it, it almost sounds like it's about the good we do versus the evil we do, and whichever stacks up more determines our destiny. But that's not what these things mean. Even if I were to read all of these scriptures, that, that's not what it means. What's happening in that day of sifting is that God's looking for the fruit of Christ's presence in us. It's the fruit of his life in us, the the evidence that reveals whether we have believed in Jesus or not. Because when we really give our life to Jesus, there's a change that happens. 
There's a shifting that goes on in us. We no longer have secrets that need to be covered up because we've confessed them to him. Our character is not the same as it was before because when he comes into us, we choose to live in his way, in his plans. And and things about our character are shifted and changed. Our language changes. The way we talk, the things we say, how we carry our conversations. Those are all the evidence of Christ in us. On that day, our attitudes will be uncovered. Our secret sins will be exposed. Our motives will be brought to light. And all of that, it's not the weighing of good versus bad and which one tallies higher. It's simply, is there evidence of faith in Jesus in your life? Has he come into you so fully, so completely that he has changed all of who you are? And so that when the sifting is done, there are no lumps left behind because you've already experienced the forgiveness, the grace, the goodness of Christ. And you've lived into that. And the failures, the mistakes, the sins have been forgiven, have been set aside by Christ. And you're free to experience eternity with God. Let's for a moment imagine that this book is something other than the Bible that it is. Let's think about it as as a book that just chronicles all the details of my life, of your life. They're all here. Everything about you is here. On that great day, that book will be opened, and everything about your life is going to be revealed. All the good, the bad, but it'll all be measured about the relationship you have with Jesus. But it's there. It's there. It's a record book of, of your life, a diary of your days. That volume that we create day by day, moment by moment, is who we are. The Bible says that someday that's going to be open, that everything in there is going to be brought to light. But I'm sure of one thing, that if I'm judged on that great day simply on the, the basis of the record that I've created, I won't get to heaven. I won't. But, Bible says something very powerful. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone in his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. His forgiveness. His grace. His life. God solved the problem. Through Jesus. See, that day of judgment will be a search for evidence of God's grace in your life. It will be a looking into your belief and your trust in Him. Charles Ryrie, when he was in seminary, this was long ago, 
talked about working that he did. He worked at the local YMCA to help fund his way through seminary. On Fridays, uh, the kids that had completed that week, all of the assignments that they were doing in a Bible club that the YMCA held, would be taken on Friday evening to uh, a camp that was out on the edge of town. And they would just enjoy the day, swimming, playing in this camp. Occasionally, as a special reward, they would stay overnight and be there until Sunday or until Saturday afternoon. And he, he tells the story about how one of those overnight trips, he was awoken uh, early on Saturday morning, where it was still dark, to strange noises. The noise of voices at a time when everyone should be asleep. The noise rising from the lake, not the cabin, where the kids should have been. And so he got up and he walked down to the lake, and there were all of the, the students that he had taken Uh, out on the lake in in the little rowboats. And as soon as they were aware of his presence, he says, they came in and they ducked their heads like a dog ducking its tail and made their way back to their cabins. And he said, we'll deal with this in the morning, go to sleep. Except that he couldn't sleep. He twisted and turned and he remembered what he had taught the kids the night before. He had been talking to them about forgiving one another, forgiveness and what it meant. And so since he couldn't sleep, he got up and he began pacing the grounds on that early morning, trying to figure out how he was going to address the kids and discipline them for what they had done. They had put themselves at risk by being on the lake in the dark. They had broken the rules. They they had put the camp at risk. They had put him at risk because they had broken these rules, and something had to be done. And yet, in the back of his mind is this teaching he had done the night before on forgiveness. And what's he going to do? He said, the more I debated with myself, the more I talked to the Lord, I thought about Bible verses. And his mind settled on one really powerful verse from Ephesians 4, verse 32. It says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And he said, I heard the verse. I remembered it. But Lord, I can't forgive them. They don't deserve it. And then he realized, Neither did I. But Lord, I have to enforce the rules. But I'm glad, Lord, that you didn't. But Lord, if I'm too kind, the kids will think I'm weak. But I never thought you were weak, only loving. But Lord, first I'll make them promise never to do something like this again, and then I'll forgive them. And then his thought was, it's a good thing you didn't require that of me. Or I never would have been forgiven just as God forgave me. How was that? No conditions, no promises ahead of time, no works at the time, no remembrance afterward, but Lord, you're God, you can do anything. And he heard, you're my child, imitate me. And so the next morning, with a little reluctance and not a whole lot of faith, he told the Lord what he would do. And in the morning, he spoke to the kids. He said, you did a terrible thing. You could have 
caused disastrous consequences for yourself and for all of us, for the YMCA, for your families. But I forgive you unconditionally, completely. The kid said, you're kidding. There's got to be a catch somewhere was their mindset. No, you're forgiven. Fully forgiven. And then he told them what the Lord had been saying to them. What he had been reminding him about grace. And he said, I want you to have a taste of that grace. You're forgiven. As he wrote about this in his book, So Great Salvation, he said, I didn't even make them clean up the camp because I didn't want them to think that was punishment. I did it for them. And he took the kids home, forgiven. So he reflected on this in the writing of the book. It was decades later when, when he wrote this story down in his book. He said, as long as those particular kids were in my clubs, they were the epitome, as much as kids that age can be, of goodness, helpfulness, and usefulness. They never presumed on that grace. One day, we're going to stand and we'll be sifted. Every one of us. It's not about the weight of good and bad. It's about where, where does this, this book of life have your name? Where does this record book of your sins reside? Is it in your hands or have you given it to Christ? Where it's been forgiven? Where grace has made a way. Remember your goal. Your goal is that your name would be in the book of life. And it can only be there by God's grace. One day that great book will be opened. Will your name be there? If you have any doubt about that, before you leave this room today, I invite you to call out to God. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to make you ready. Not just now, but in eternity. To spend life with him. You see, I don't want to be in heaven without you. I don't. I think most of you, probably all of you, feel the same way about everyone else in this room. We don't want to be in heaven without each other. The only way that will happen is if we place our belief and faith and our trust in Christ. We cross over from death to life. So that on that great day of judgment, when Jesus opens that book, he looks and he points and he smiles and he says, there's your name. There's your name. There's your name. Call out to him. Pray to him. As the worship team comes, come ahead. We're going to sing a a simple little chorus. Probably sing it a couple of times. I invite you, I encourage you, as that song is sung, as you lift those words, that you offer a prayer to God, uh, either a prayer of thanksgiving for what he has done for you, or a prayer saying, Lord, I believe, forgive me, make me ready. Let's stand and sing.